0: ministry, that people would come up to him and ask him, how can I know that I am saved? What a great question, right? And so, our spirit said, yeah, I typically respond with three questions to people. And the first question was, do you love Christ perfectly? And, of course, the answer would inevitably, no, I, I don't love him perfectly. And then, right, right because if you, it should be no. Because if you, if you said yes, the, the answer would be, then Christ didn't need to die for you. Of course, Christ does need to die for you because of your sin. So, no, you don't love him perfectly. Then he asked the next question. Do you love Christ as much as you ought to love him? And if you answer no to the first one, you have to answer no to the second one because you ought to love him perfectly and wholly, completely. And then to get down to the third question, do you love him at all? Do you love Jesus just a little bit? And of course, most people say, yes, I I have some affection for him. I love him as best as I know I can. And that would, R.C. said, great. Because in your natural state, you couldn't love him. You wouldn't have any affection for him. You wouldn't care for him one iota. But that you have a little affection, a little love. We know from the last verses before that, that this is because the Father gives you to the Son, And if the Father gives you to the Son, the Son holds you fast. And you love Him because He's given you to the Son. This is a true and helpful dialogical approach to maybe helping someone learn that they are secure and that they can trust Jesus for their salvation. But faith, belief, trust is a growth process in any relationship. It... Trust is a gift in any relationship, and it is a growth process in any relationship. In all relationships in this world, every relationship you have in this world, there are insecurities. Some of them, there are great deals of insecurity. You don't know how much to trust, but even in your closest, most intimate relationships, there are insecurities in them. When I'm dealing with people and, and counseling with them, I talk about, hey, in, in premarital counseling, like, listen, I know there's insecurities in the relationships. Like, no, we're not, inse- no, I know there are, there are, there's not total trust in this relationship. Your goal in your lifetime is to reduce those insecurities as much as possible. You can't totally get rid of them. But you can reduce them, and since building trust, giving trust over and over, and we hear things about in relationships, you have to have a theology to understand that uh, trust is going to be broken in every relationship. But how do you deal with it? That then, and how do you deal with it actually helps the trust grow. Here's the thing, though: even in our relationship with God, we are insecure. Even when we say we trust and we believe in him and we love him. And for those that are just greatly in love with him, there's still insecurities in our relationship with God. We're unsure. God is never insecure with us. Never insecure with us. He knows us past, present, future. He knows every detail about us. And he loves you. And God knows that you are broken and wounded, and he knows that you are an insecure person. And he knows you grapple and and struggle with trust. You and I want to love someone, right? You want to love God. You want to love someone, you need to trust and believe in them. You need to have a level of trust and belief in them. In order to have a level of trust and belief in them, you need to reduce the insecurities in that relationship. In order to reduce those insecurities, you need to know that person. How do you know that in an interpersonal relationship? You have to be willing to share yourself, and that person has to be willing to share. And when the more self-revelation, then there's insecurities reduce. Trust builds, love builds. Here's the thing about God. God knows... We need to know about him. He reveals everything you need to know about him. He doesn't hold back. He's not hidden from us. He is revealing so, so that we can reduce our insecurities, so that we can trust, and so that we can love. But here's the thing also. We know that God gives us this supernatural ability to begin to trust, to turn our hearts to love him. And John 7, 5, it says this clearly in this story today. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even Jesus' brothers. Some of people say, wait, he had brothers? Yes, he had brothers. They were all younger brothers, right? Technically would be half brothers because Joseph is technically not Jesus' father. We know who his father is, right? This miraculous birth that he has. But Joseph and Mary had other children. They grew up with Jesus. In fact, they are the people that knew Jesus the best. They lived with them. They slept in the same place with them. They ate with them. And trust me, when you sit around a table with brothers and siblings, you begin to know them intimately. You begin to know who they are. When you sleep in the same room, when you live under, when you do the same job as your father, a carpenter. you begin to know each other. No one knows Jesus more than his brothers. And in this passage, it says, they did not believe in him. They didn't trust him. They knew lots of details and information about him. They knew about the miracles in which he performed. They were actually even his disciples. They followed him. Yet the scripture says clearly, they did not believe him. What did they not believe about Jesus? His brothers simply did not understand that he was God. Now, you've grown up with someone for 30 years. You've eaten with them. You slept You're know, like, no. Like, he did, like, he's not God. He's Jesus. He's my brother. I know he does it. he's anointed. I know he does his miraculous things. I've seen the miraculous things. I've seen the authority in his teaching. But how can they wrap their mind around that their brother is God? how can any person wrap their mind around that a human is god? their brothers in the same boat as most of us but they understand him even more. they understood they saw the healings and the, the miracles and the teaching. they knew. they knew that he was establishing a kingdom. but they thought like everyone else that he was going to overthrow their oppressor, rome. that he was going to establish a kingdom on earth. They just couldn't wrap their mind or understand or believe or trust that he was God. That is outside of their framework of understanding, much like it was the uh, the apostles. In John 14, 8, later on, we have this encounter with Philip, right, to Jesus. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? The, the apostles themselves, they couldn't wrap, they didn't have a framework to understand that Jesus was God, and Jesus is clearly saying right now, you don't understand that the Father and I are one? That I am God in the flesh? You don't understand, you've seen all the things I've done, I chose you, and you still don't understand? It's beyond their framework. It's beyond the framework of his brothers. The context of this passage this morning, it's, you know, we've been reading these these kind of this monologue from Jesus. And it's just the time has kind of shifted. It's about six months now from the feeding of the 5,000. So it's six months in in the future. Uh, Jesus has now decided he's staying in the northern part of Israel and and doesn't want to go to the south uh, to where Jerusalem is or to Judea. So he's staying in Galilee where he's from, uh, which is just a context with a hundred mile uh, difference And it particularly says he doesn't want to go there in John 7, 1 to three because after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, the south, because the Jews, the Jews is a a term in John used for for religious authorities, those who are in power, were seeking to kill him. Well, there's a good reason not to go down, right? We're to the capital city where the Jewish authorities are. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. All right, so, we know this already in John 5.18, that the religious stories were... This is not just something that Jesus is like, wow, he has a supernatural knowledge. We know that he knows that they're trying to kill him. In John 5.18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, right? They think he's a lawbreaker. But he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. So, the Jews, the religious authorities, understood... That Jesus was claiming to be equal with God, equal to the Father, to be God himself. Just as the same way that you can assume that his brothers and his as apostles, they understood what Jesus was trying to do. They just couldn't wrap their mind around that concept. All right, we'll follow him, we'll keep doing it. I just really can't get this concept that he is actually God himself. I know I see the miracles, I know I see the authority, but I can't get it. One of the reasons Jesus uh, is not going to, to the, uh, the south is because it's a feast. It's the Feast of Booths. It's the Feast of Tabernacles or, or Sukkot. It's actually, I don't know if you live in a long meadow. I don't know if you've saw any of these last weekend. Last weekend was the end of this festival. It's one of the great, uh, three great pilgrimage festivals of the Jewish uh, faith. Uh, and so here, what it is, it's a celebration of the time that God provided in the wilderness. And so the way they celebrate that, you can see in the picture up here, is they would create booths. Uh, This is actually in Jerusalem itself, modern day. They would create booths to celebrate that they're in the wilderness. And uh, depending on how observant you are, you would just go share meals in that and then go sleep in your home. Or you actually spend seven days living outside in that booth, reminding that you were traveling uh, in booths and living in these temporary houses in the wilderness, as God provided. It's also a celebration of a harvest, right? This is harvest time, and so a celebration giving thanks to God at the harvest. And so Josephus, a great historian, early early historian, tells us that this actually, the festival of Booth is actually probably the most important or most attended holiday for the Jewish people, even over Passover, even over uh, the Pentecost was the the beginning of the harvest kind of celebration they would have. This is the one in which they were all required to go travel to the south, go travel to Jerusalem and celebrate. When they're in a city, they make booths, or they make booths outside the city. It's required. And so it makes sense that they're actually, why Jesus doesn't want to go. Lots of people are going to be down there. The Jewish authorities are going to be down there. They're trying to kill me. This is what clearly is being happened here. So his brothers, knowing all this, knowing it's the festival of the booths, they give him a suggestion. They give him some good advice, some good brotherly advice, as his own disciples himself. Why did they give him advice? Because they have seen and they have experienced his teaching and his authority and his miracles, but they've also seen what's just happened in these past six months. Many of his followers have left. many ways, I've heard Jesus' words and his teachings said, this is too difficult this is too hard and they fled away so they'll think hey this is a great time to recruit some more people you know where everyone's gonna be gathered they're going down to jerusalem you know what you could you could do some supernatural things you can do your teaching we know this draws people to jesus you can get more followers you can establish this kingdom that you've been talking about Practical advice. It's practical brotherly encouragement. The one thing though is Jesus is not providing what they wanted and expected. That's why people started stopped following him. That's why the, the disciples, a lot of the disciples started leaving. Jesus doesn't provide what people want or what they expect from him. Why don't they why doesn't he provide what they don't want and would expect? It's because they don't actually know who he is. They don't know who he is. And they expect something else. Hold on to this thought. Them not knowing who Jesus is. And verses 3 through 4. So his brothers said to him, "Right here's the practical, I leave here, go to Judea, and your disciples will also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if it seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Practical advice: go to the crowds. Don't do these things hidden, right? A light shines, so you, you're a light. Go shine. Do all these things so they can see. Then you can establish your kingdom. Then you can over, overthrow the Romans. This is fantastic. Now, remember the context, right? Verse 5, they do not believe. They do not believe that Jesus is God. They can't wrap their minds around this. But they believe a lot of other things about him. Jesus responds to this intended well-intended advice jesus said to him my time is not yet come but your time is always here now you think well all right i don't i guess we can kind of understand that but it's actually really a harsh rebuke to them if you, know, if you remember ecclesiastes this kind of famous passage in ecclesiastes 3 1 right there's a whole folk song written to this for everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, which is, which is planted, a time, a time, you know, over and over. Right the point here is that, it's that using that word, in, in the Greek, there's several words for time. One is chronos, which is just kind of a, a general sense of, of time. And then there's also the word kairos, which means appointed or divine providence of time. And so Jesus casually says this. doesn't He says, your time is always... He's really saying, your time is not in the providence of God. It doesn't really mean anything. It's always. It's insignificant. Your plans and your thoughts, not. it's insignificant in the ideas of God. My time, because they don't know who he is. God's time. This is an appointed time, and it's not yet. There'll be a reason why Jesus goes down to Jerusalem. There'll be a reason why he goes to the crowd. It won't be going to establish this earthly kingdom. It won't be going to establish throwing out the Romans. Jesus has a Kairos moment, and his Kairos moment is the cross. There's a time when he will march and go directly to Jerusalem, and that's to get on the cross. Do you remember the, uh, the first miracle that performed in the, in the Gospel of John? It's the wedding of Cana, right? And and Mary, his mother, comes to Jesus, right? The wine has run out, and the the groom is embarrassed, and uh, the steward is embarrassed. And so Mary takes it upon herself, and she goes to Jesus in John 2, 4, and Jesus uh, says, Jesus, do something about this. You can fix this. Like, she doesn't tell him how. Like, you can fix this. And Jesus replies to him, replies to his uh, mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come come that hour uh, it's not the same word but it's the same concept as it might every time he uses my hour it, it's the cross my hour has not yet come my time to die has not come you know, my time to show my glory has not yet come mother interesting enough what does jesus do he solves the problem that his mother asked him to do same thing here his brother says, Hey, you should go to Jerusalem and gather people. And Jesus says, No, my time is not here. What happens in this passage? He goes to Jerusalem. But he goes incognito. He doesn't go in the way that they expect him to. But he goes down to observe. There is an appointed time and reason for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. And that is to establish his kingdom. Just not in the manner in which his brothers or his apostles. Or as disciples expect. How could they? Jesus says in John twelve through two, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus said, "It's not by my, my miracles. It's not by my teaching that people are going to come flocking to me and follow me. You know what's going to happen? I'm going to die on a cross. That's going to be the moment." Ironically, when everyone flees, that people will eventually be drawn to him. That's how Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth, through his death. And then his kingdom is ushered in. How could we ever have a framework for that? How could his brothers ever have a framework for that? Not by political power, but by his death. So Jesus' brothers come up to Jerusalem, they leave him behind, and then Jesus goes down incognito to the festival. I'd love to see his costume. I don't know what it was. Uh, maybe he just had you know, his robe over more, but I'm just speculating uh, what it could be. Uh, but Jesus is the talk. He goes down. And he's not even there, but he's the talk of the festival. Everyone is talking about Jesus, but they're not talking out loud. It has to be in verse in whispers and rumors and not op- open dialogue. Because the Jews, the religious leaders, right? We know they want to kill him. And they don't want people talking about him. Everyone was afraid of the Jewish people, it says in verse 13. So it was whispers and rumors and everyone was saying. And what were they saying in, John, in verses 11 through 12? The Jews were looking for him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Why were some saying, he's a good man? And others says, no, he's leading... The people astray. Others are saying, some are saying, hey, he's a good egg. We like him. He's a good fellow. Others are saying, he's a liar. He's deceiving you all. It's kind of opposite extremes. Notice what they're not saying. No one is saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And that is what he's been trying to explicitly say and do in his miracles over and over. Just like his brothers the crowd doesn't believe why don't they believe because they don't know him they don't know him i told you rc sproul had those three questions people come in looking for assurance right those three questions right do you love jesus perfectly like no do you love christ as much as you ought to love him no. Do you love him at all? I, yes, I love him a, a bit. But the, RC admits that the question that he actually should ask people in the end is, do you love the biblical Christ? Do you love the revealed Jesus? Do you love who Jesus says he is? Or do you love the Jesus in your mind? Or the Jesus that you want? Or the Jesus that you think you need? Do you believe in that Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know the Jesus that's revealed page after page from beginning to end in Scripture? Or do you believe in love in Jesus whom you expect and who you want? Nirvana's song, Come As You Are, You don't, don't judge me. You listen to crazy stuff too. Um, Come as you are. Uh, This is the the first three lyrics in this song. I'm not going to sing it. I wish I could. Uh, Come as you are, as you were, as I want you to be. This is a song that is not uh, wanting people just to come to them, but it's a song that's actually expressing, I want people to come the way I want them to be right it's it's a play on that it's like i want people to be who i expect them to be or i want them to be i want them to do what i want them to do be what i i need to be come as you are as you were as i want you to be man that's how we operate a lot don't we is this not how jesus's brothers treat him Is this not how the crowds and the disciples that left him approached him? Jesus, this is who we need you to be. Be this miracle worker. Be this king that overthrows Rome. And when he's not, they leave. Is this not even how his apostles, the twelve, treat Jesus? We want Jesus to be someone else. We want Jesus to be our king and our Lord as we define what our needs are and what our wants are. Is that not how we all approach Jesus? Jesus, provide for me safety. There's nothing wrong with asking for safety. But if that all he is for you, you don't understand him and you don't understand your wants. Jesus, provide for me healing and perfection. Hey, those are temporal things. He wants you to ask for them. But that's not primarily who he is. It's not primarily what your need is. Jesus, provide for me a spouse and a kid. That's not a bad thing to ask. It's not a bad thing to get. Is that who Jesus' bottom line is for you? Jesus, provide for me financial security. Jesus, provide for me. Give me, give me, give me something. Whatever I deem necessary. This is how the question, even as uh, they the approached RC, the people that approached RC, this is the, even the same approach as they approached him. How do I know that I am saved? They are asking, provide me security and assurance that I get to live forever, that I get to be in heaven. Provide for me something. Assure me that Jesus provides for me these things. Those aren't bad things. Those are really good things. And it's okay to have assurance with them. But contrast this with the prayer that Jesus gives to the Father on, on the, day, on the d- nights before he goes to the cross. As he marches to Jerusalem. In John 17, this is the, the great priestly prayer. I mean, this is actually the Lord's prayer. And we have something else we call the Lord's prayer. This is the Lord's prayer. John 17. This, this is the beginning of it. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Alright, hold on to that. It's The hour has come. The time for the cross has come. The time for me to die and lay down my life For your people has come. This is the time in which I will glorify you. And interesting enough, the Father will glorify you. The the, one Jesus is most glorified is when he's lifted high on the cross. Well, go on. That's not really the main point. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. All right. This is great news. This is where we get to see where Jesus gives eternal life. And then he defines it this is eternal life that you know that they know you the true god and jesus christ jesus is talking to the third person we can handle this whom you have sent did you hear that did you hear what eternal life is that jesus defined that you actually have true knowledge of who he is not what he provides Eternal life, by definition, is understanding who he is, in which everyone in this story does not. They don't understand. They don't understand. And he's making it clear as day. We can look back and be like, man, this is clear as day. He's saying that he's God. This is eternal life, knowing Jesus. Eternal life is not all the extra benefits because you know him. Those are just the extra benefits because you know him. It's just knowing him. Knowing who he really is. And ultimately because he knows you. And when I say no, covenantly knows you. Intimately knows you. You see, Jesus isn't just the provider of salvation. He's not the provider of eternal life. He is the provision of salvation. He is eternal life. He is the author, sustainer, and giver of life. He is eternal life. Jesus says this in John 14. I am life. He says it in john 11 i am the resurrection of life even before he is the resurrection i am life i am god when i came to faith as a high schooler uh some of you know my story and and my ambitions changed quickly dramatically because of god and and my life story how i define it is all i've ever wanted to do now is to want to know god more and now i get to have a job In which I get to study and get to know God more and you pay me to do this now there's more to the job than that there's more to the calling than that but that's been my life goal to know him more And the way I I really get to know him more the way I really in my relationship with God deepens is when I'm in Scripture the more I'm in Scripture the more I connect with him I, I struggle hard praying without Scripture you want me to pray and connect to God? I connect with him in scripture, and I pray through scripture. I mean, I, can, I do pray otherwise, but it's harder for me in my ability, how I understand through scripture. That's just me. I'm not saying that's the way you ought to do it. It's knowing God more. I want to be, it's not just, but it's not just information I want. I want to be more in relationship with him. Philippians 3.18 Paul says it this way, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I mean, Paul even says it in Romans 9. I think it's 9-1. Where he says, man, I would give up my salvation. I would give up my eternal life. I know Christ if other people can know him. I would give it up because that's how valuable it is. Last week, we prayed and we talked about the application about uh, 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 God, uh, God, incline our hearts. Incline our hearts to your word so we get to know you more. Incline our hearts to your testimony. And we we talked about people being eager to be in his word and asking God for, for us to be eager to be in word. And yes, an amen to that. But Jesus puts a little qualifier on this. He says it in John 5, 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. I want you to hear this quickly. Jesus said, don't go search the scriptures because you want a provision that Jesus will provide for you. We go to the scriptures to know him. To meet him to grow in our relationship with him so that he can reveal who he is. And when someone reveals with him, him, right, he knows everything about us. We actually don't need to reveal anything, but he asks us to reveal. Tell him, tell me about you. When you reveal, then insecurities reduce. God doesn't have to know insecurities, but our insecurities reduce because we begin to know God more. When you begin to understand God in the scriptures more, you begin to understand more and more the depth of his unfathomable love. And then your insecurity drops. Your trust grows. Your faith grows. And you begin to wrap your mind around more and more who he is. We go to the scriptures to know Jesus, to love Jesus. Let us be a people that search God's word, that open up our Bibles, that come to church, not because we're looking for some provision in our life, not because we're doing it out of some obedience, because we want to be with the people of God Searching his scriptures and his words so we get to know him more. Because that's the provision. That's eternal life. Let us search the scriptures to know Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious Father. Lord, I know sometimes I I am drawn to your scriptures to find out more details and more facts and more interesting tidbits. Lord, help me to turn my heart and turn our hearts to know and seek you more. I thank you, God, for revealing who you are more today. Through your word. I thank you for this, this table that's before us, that is a grace for us. That's not just a, a reminder of what you have done, but a reminder of the present, presence that you have with us and a reminder of the future provision of an eternal banquet with you. All that is that because we know you and you know us. Lord, incline our hearts to your word incline our hearts to you. Deepen our love and deepen our trust. Lord, you revealed who you are. Continue to reveal who you are in our hearts, in our minds. With all our strength, Lord, may we turn to you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.